we're talking today about the woman who waited for 12 years. She waited for healing. She waited to, um, to have some sort of uh, healing come into her life. And as we look at this scripture today, it just kind of pulls me back to um, a moment I experienced when Erica and I went to field day at, the, at, the, at Lincoln Elementary. It was, it was magic. Remember field day? Like, you know, like the crazy events, like Frisbee toss, you know. Apparently up here you guys do shoe kick. Oh, when Erica and I were first dating and she's like, oh, yeah, I was good at shoe kick. I was like, what? She's like, oh, yeah, you loosen your shoe and you kick it. And I'm like, yeah, I think we just kicked kids like that, but not that that's okay. But apparently shoe kick's the thing. But anyways, we were, um, we were at field day. And it was quite a bit of fun, and they bring out the parachute. Every elementary school, right, has parachute. It's like we're getting the parachutes out, and kids are like, yes. They just love the parachute no matter what the game is. And so here's what they did. They, boom, they fluffed it up, and the kids sat down and kind of laid it over their waist like this. So it looked like they were just sitting, and half their body was under the the parachute, and um, we, Erica and I are like, what is this game? It was just kind of weird. It seemed like, you know, I'm like, let them put their heads under. At least they can see the dome. Like, it just seemed weird. And all of a sudden, a blood-curdling scream from a child next to us was like, save me, and he reached out, and he was being drugged under the parachute, and I'm like, oh my gosh. I grab him, I'm like, little child. And I'm like, what was that? And Erica and I look at each other like, just happened. And then like two kids are like, ah, and they're getting drug under and we're like, what's happening? I don't know what like future dictator came up with this game, but it's it's a game where there's two sharks in the middle of the uh, parachute swimming around and all these kids are like waist deep in the water and the sharks come up and grab their little feet and pull them in and there's lifeguards who have to save them and kids are screaming save me as they're being pulled under the parachute and you're like oh my gosh it was terrifying I'm like hey here's a seed for bad dreams eat up like it was just crazy but I'll just never forget this save me and we're like we will and then the other kid got eaten and we're like can't save all of them, you know, it was, it was a different game. But that, that feeling of like, oh, save me. Maybe you remember, uh, much like I do, I was a super-duper chicken when I was little, and I was scared of everything. And, um, and I just remember, like, you're laying in bed, and you're like, something from the dark closet just looked back at me. I could feel it there. And you would scream out, Dad or Mom, come quick. There's something in the closet. And they would come in, and you're like, there's something in there. It waved, you know, as I like, come here. And you're like, oh, no. And your parents would go and look in the closet, which now I look back, I'm like, so apparently I was willing to let my parents get eaten by a monster because I'm like, you go look. If you don't make it out, we'll figure that out from there as long as it's not me, right? But they would go in, they would look, and here's the thing that, um, that I loved about it. They would go look, they would tuck you back in, and they would put you to sleep with this, this sense of security, right? They would give you your 43rd cup of water so you don't die of thirst, and they'd give you your cup of water, and they'd kiss you, and you'd tuck you back in, and out they would go, and you would fall asleep knowing there was nothing in the closet or under the bed. They would save you. They would rescue you from what was going on between your own ears. They would save you from your own imagination, and it was this, this comforting thing that happened. As we get older, um, our closets aren't as frightening, 
but then reality hits. Some things land in our life that are scary. And at times, we as adults want to cry out, save me, save me. Somebody come look at this. Get a look at this. This is frightening to me. Help me out. We have those moments where we feel afraid and we want to scream, save me. But grown-ups don't do that, do they? We don't feel free to cry out, save me. We don't feel free to well, maybe we're a little too mature. Maybe we're a little too mighty or old. But that's not the language of Scripture. Scripture has woven into it the language of adults who never forgot what it was like to be a child and cry out, save me. Psalm 40, written by King David. Uh, it says this, verses 11 through 13. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and your faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. And my sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head, and my heart is failing within me. Be pleased to save me. Lord, come quickly. Lord, to help me. Like, that is a full-throated cry from an adult, a king, crying out, Lord, please save me. It's the same as that child, save me, reaching out. It's, it's, a, it's a hand extended to a God who chose to give himself the identity as in the name of Savior, one who saves it's someone, it's the cry of an adult who understands the identity, the person, the heart of the God he serves, one as a savior. So I wanna talk today about the name of Jesus. We call him our savior. And I love that we get to look at his identity and the person of Jesus. Because, well, he was named, we know him, he's Jesus. I remember when Erica was pregnant, I wasn't, though some of you have made jokes that I looked that way, it's hurtful, um, but when we were pregnant, we would look at um, baby names, and we would look through different names. Our oldest son is named after his uncle Josh, right? And Josh was given my middle name, Eric, um, so he's Joshua Eric, and I'm Kenneth Eric. You didn't know that, did you? Yeah, my first name's Kenneth. You may not know this, but you'll, you won't be surprised, Kenneth means handsome. Do with it what you will. Um, so, uh, so we looked at that, right? Like Joshua, Eric, and and we knew we knew the the value in that name, and we wanted it passed on. We for Isabella, we had Isabella Ann, right? Isabella consecrated to God and full of grace. When Ethan was um, about to make his entrance into the world, I had wanted to name him Elway as his middle name because. I have a bit of a um, passion for John Elway. I'm not ashamed. I don't know. I, I would hug him so tight if I saw him. I, I think the bodyguards would have to tase me. I love him so much. I love you, John. Um, so John Elway, my childhood hero, quarterback. He's amazing. He's the GOAT. He's best ever. There's Tom Brady, but yeah, John Elway kicks him out of the way because he's the best, right? I wanted to name my, one of my sons with the middle name Elway. So we named Ethan, Ethan and Elway was the name. Erica had been like, yeah, you can do that. I was like, oh, this is going to be the best. Not the best child ever. Don't hear that other two. But this is going to be a great name. And then I looked up the meaning of Elway. 
Way of the Elm. Basically, Elm-lined streets. Elm Street. Nope. That, that couldn't be it. I couldn't have the meaning of my son's name be a street with elm trees. Just doesn't work. I, in my ethic, I think names are significant, right? So we named him Ethan Gabriel. Ethan, steadfast. Gabriel, messenger of God. Names have meanings, and they're deeply rooted and held, and there's identity in these names. And um, when Mary was pregnant, she wasn't looking through what to name your baby or what to expect when you're expecting. She wasn't sitting there trying to figure out what to name him. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 21, the angel, Gabriel, speaks to Joseph, and he says this. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save them, save people from their sins. Jesus is given a name. He's given a name. And the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And the Hebrew name Joshua means the Lord saves. Interesting, interesting meaning on this name. So Jesus, the Greek form meaning the Lord saves. Save, the Lord saves, the Savior name, is actually a Greek word, and I don't go into this too much, but it's a, I think it's really worth doing in this. The Greek word, zotso. Zotso, it's this powerful verb. Zotso is my kind of word. It doesn't sit still like a noun and have this identity. It's a verb, it's action, it's doing something. And the word zotso means to save. It means I save, I heal, I preserve, I rescue. It's a powerful verb. It's this, it has um, divine undertones. It floats up on this identity of doing a work that we all fear we're never capable of doing ourselves. We know we can't, no matter how hard we try. Zodso means to save, I save. Jesus' name is rooted. Before he ever was birthed into this world, his identity and his work, the God would identify the person of Jesus as one who would save, who would heal, who would preserve, who would rescue, who would cure. Like when you look at that, it's just a powerful and impacting name. No wonder we're attracted to it. No wonder there's, there's, you know, there's no name like Jesus. No wonder we sing a song, what a beautiful name. It's Savior. It's Zotso. It's this powerhouse of action on our behalf. It's used at different times within the New Testament And like I said, it means save, heal, preserve, rescue, deliver, or cure. When you hear that name, Zotso, Jesus, God will Zotso. He will save, and the identity of that Savior is Jesus. The one who brings it about is Jesus. I want you to have that construct of who he is in your minds when we dive in to Mark chapter 5, verse 24 through 34, the Gospel of Mark. So it's the second, uh, the, yeah, second book in the New Testament. Boy, I totally stubbed my toe on that one. Um, but Mark, second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. Mark is a hyperactive gospel. I love it so much. It's, I think, 
Mark is a verb gospel. It's just on the move. And Mark chapter 5, 24 to 34, the story of a woman 12 years searching for healing. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. That him is Jesus, right? So imagine with me. um, Think of... Think of Bono at a concert and him being off the stage in the crowd, pressing around him, right? They would all want to be uh, near him. Jesus is, is in a crowd, and they're following him, and they press around him. And there was a woman there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent everything she had. Um, and here's the... Oh, man. Like, how do you not, how do you not have a heart for someone who spent everything they had over 12 years just trying to get to a cure? Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak Because, she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was free from her suffering. At once, Jesus recognized that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and asked, who just touched my clothes? I love this. Like, imagine this, like a crowd of people, and you're like, who touched me? And everybody's like, I don't know, what? Like, like, did they not make eye contact for a minute? Like, you know, everybody's like, ah! Like, such a weird moment, because he's like, who touched me? And so all the close people, like, you you know, you're pressed in, like, I don't know who it was, man, but it wasn't me. And, like, he's wondering, who touched me? He felt the power go out from him. His disciples said, you see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched you? They're wondering, they're like, you know, everybody, are you being rhetorical? Like, you can see, how would you answer that? But Jesus kept looking around. He knew that, yeah, a lot of people were touching him, but he kept looking around. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came forward and fell at his feet and was trembling with fear. Trembling, that that knee-knocking, terrified. Because she knows what she's done. And we're gonna talk about it, but she knows what she's done. She has, we'll talk about that in a minute. And when the woman comes forward, trembling in fear, Jesus, in love and just this kindness, listens to her tell the whole truth of what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is where we really get into it. 12 years, this poor woman went through the grind of isolation. In the Old Testament, there is a law given to us. It's called the Torah. It is the law of the Israelites. It's God's law given to Moses. And within that law are laws of purification, laws of of how you are to handle certain um, bio, uh, biological realities. And when a woman had a time of bleeding, they were outside the camp. They were to be kept separate. 
and then when it was over, they could come back in. Well, if she had been bleeding for 12 years, she has been out of community, out of human contact for 12 years. So when Jesus says, who touched me? And she kind of goes, oh my goodness. And then we now know why she was trembling because there was a crowd pressed around Jesus and she had touched him and everyone was touching him. And there would have been this fear in her that she had done wrong and made everyone unclean. There was this reality that she had broken the law, but she had been isolated for 12 years without contact. I mean, what are we, two and a half months into the shutdown? Stay home, stay safe. Don't, I, I know whether you like it or not, I don't care. I'm just saying that's been the mantra, stay home, stay safe. We can't even go see our, our extended families. Grandparents, let me ask you. How bad do you want to get your hands around your grandbabies and just hug them, right? How bad do you want to see them and touch them and be around your children and your extended families? How tired of you are just looking at each other? Hello again for the third straight month on ending. Like, it's been a while without contact. How bad do you want to see them? And think of her. She's been outside the community for 12 years According to my amazing math talent, that is 11 years and nine and a half months more than we have. She has been without contact. Imagine the psychological, emotional, and physical toll of being unclean as a person, being outside of community, being untouched, unloved, and uncared for emotionally and physically. It had been brutal. She had turned everywhere else to doctors. Like, you know, she went to Spectrum, and then she went to the chiropractor, and then she went to the essential oils lady, went... And then, you know, to whoever just had, like, you know, and then she went and, I don't know, like, got some other medicine. I don't know. I always tease essential oils. Lindsay does it, and I'm like, it's witchcraft, and then I get yelled at. But, like, seriously, she had gone everywhere, everywhere. And she was now broke, alone, and hopeless. And what would she do? She thought to herself, if I could just touch his clothes, if I could just reach out and just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Zotso. She uses the word zotso. If I could touch him, I will be cured. I would be healed, preserved, rescued, delivered. All these words. Yes, she was talking about a physical thing, but there was more to it. She used this word zotso. And in the New Testament, zotso is only used twice referring to physical healing. It's used once regarding a blind man and then once regarding this woman. All the other times, zotso is dealing with the underlying spiritual reality that we need to be saved from a sinful nature and brokenness within us. It's not usually used in terms of a physical issue. So what we understand is she knew that she was physically broken, but she also knew something was wrong. And she was looking for a healing for her body, but she actually wanted something that healed all of her, everything that separated her. She understood what it was to be separate from God's community. She understood the pain of isolation. And sin isolates us from God. It separates us. She, in some measure, 
knew it. She knew it. It had been a trouble in her life. It had plagued her. It had made her keenly aware of all that she was. And so here's what we want to do. I would like to go back to 40 real quick. Psalm 40. And read a couple or one verse out of there. And maybe we can start drawing some parallels. Psalm 40. Chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 40, verse 7. For troubles without number surround me. My sin has overtaken me, and I cannot see. I'll be honest, I had never caught that last three-word ending of this. I cannot see. All I see is my sin. It's overtaken me like a flood, and it's dark, and it's murky, and I cannot even see. So I've got troubles that are so vast, I can't even number them. But I also have sin, and that has overtaken me and blinded me. Let's set these two, troubles and sin, like, you know, like little twins. Set them on a chair, and let's take a look, because they're actually not twins. They're unique in this. They're not identical. They're two different things. Troubles can be injury. They can be disease, illness, people coming against you, addiction, temptation, Broken emotional habits that hurt other people, that can be troubles. Those are troubles. Sin is different than that. Sin is things that we do in defiance of the will, purposes, and desires of God. That's sin. Sin is our nature revolting against God's goodness. Sin, are, sin is things that we do. Troubles, quite often, are things that happen in our lives that, that are just hard, and we don't understand why. Both of these cause pain. So please hear me in this. Both troubles and sin cause pain, and they kind of feel the same. But they are very different. Jesus taught us that physical ailments are not always the result or the consequence of sin. So if you're out there today and you are suffering and you have been in physical pain, you've been in emotional pain, and you think it's because God doesn't love you or you have done something, that first of all, God loves you. And second of all, your troubles are not always the result of sin. Your troubles are not always the result or the consequence of sin. Sometimes they are. But many times they're not. Jesus said it this way, with his disciples, the last night he was with the disciples before he was crucified. In this world, you will have troubles. But take heart. I've overcome this world. I've overcome the world that is full of troubles without number. Jesus says, I've overcome it, but they are there. So it's not a, your troubles are not always a consequence of sin. The blind man that Jesus heals in John, the Gospel of John, so there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John, the fourth Gospel, he says it this way, tells this story in John chapter nine. There was a blind man. Jesus was walking with his disciples, and his disciples see a blind man begging in the streets, and they do what any compassionate person does. They look at him and say, hey, Jesus, 
was it this guy's fault? Like, did he sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? Like, they had to go to pastor one-on-one classes. Like, that is terrible, right? The guy sitting there, he's like, I'm blind, not deaf. I, I, dude, I heard that. Like, he had to be sitting there thinking, awesome. Why don't you just kind of make my life tougher? But what did Jesus say? He said, neither his parents nor he sinned. Rather, this trouble, this thing, this blindness that he's had was meant for him to reveal the glory of God. And Jesus gave him his sight. His sin wasn't the issue. What Jesus said is, look, this is a trouble he's had, but that trouble is to reveal God's glory. God will reveal and give beauty out of those ashes. That's what Jesus says. He didn't, now one thing Jesus didn't say is he, he also didn't say sin, that, um, that pain was never the result of sin, or that God would not use pain to get our attention. There are times where sin has consequences that bring about trouble and pain. But he also made it very clear that God uses our pain and he redeems us out of sin for his glory. God uses our pain to get our attention often, often. When Erica and I were working on this teaching and talking together, um, we remembered back to a decade ago. Erica was um, just in an incredible amount of pain. Um, I just remember it was, it was chronic, it was ongoing, it was mind-numbing. If you've ever had chronic pain, you know what I'm talking about. Where you wake up, your first thought is, am I in pain again? And when you go to sleep, will I wake up in pain again? It is, it is just a hollow, tooth-achy pain. She was in pain and went through a season of physical pain that became emotional pain for her. And it was a number of years ago in our life. But I'll tell you this. It was a pain that we believe God put her through. She believes God put her in that because she sat down crisscross applesauce in front of God and looked to him in that season. I learned so much from my wife in that season of what it is to wait in seasons of intense pain, of physical pain, of emotional pain. We didn't know the reason for it. It didn't make sense. We couldn't get physical answers. It took an emotional toll. I mean, my first words when I came home from work are, how are you feeling? Not like, hey, how's it going, but how are you feeling? Are you in pain? Quite often it was just a shake of the head like, it's there. It won't go away. It was a painful time. But God used that pain in her life to convict her of sins, and I think rooted deep sin in her life that God wanted to work out. And it wasn't stuff on the surface of her life. God had to dig down and do what I would call a bit of a spiritual root canal and dig up by the roots some things he didn't want in her life. And it was painful physically, it got her attention. Emotionally, it got her attention. And spiritually, it became what I would say is one of the single most transformative years of her life. She came out of the pain a different woman. She came out of that pain a different woman. I'm so thankful she sat down in front of God and just waited 
and just waited and asked, God, what is going on? And she laid everything out before him. Everything she laid before God. She quit holding on to anything and just laid it before him. It transformed her. But I will tell you this. There are many times, and there's examples in Scripture where people going through pain don't listen to God. They don't sit down and seek God in it. We can look at the story in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. There's a pool called the Pool of Bethsaida. And there was a man there who was crippled. Now the Pool of Bethsaida had a time every year where the angel would stir up the waters of the Pool of Bethsaida and the first to go in would be healed. Jesus walks by one of the crippled men laying by the Pool of Bethsaida and he asks him, do you want to be healed? I mean, the answer would be, yep, yep, totally. I would love to be a candidate for that, right? Yes, I want to be healed, but do you know what he said? What he said to Jesus' question, so here's how it went. Do you want to be healed? Every time the angel stirs the water, I don't get there in time, and nobody helps me. He told Jesus why he wasn't getting healed. He didn't answer Jesus' question. So Jesus went ahead and healed the man. He healed him, and that man didn't even know who Jesus was. Later on, Jesus and him crossed paths one day. And Jesus found him and said, see, you are well. You are well. Go and sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen. Like, that would cause you to be like, what, worse, what? Right? What? But what is Jesus saying here? See, you are well. When the woman was healed, the woman was bleeding, the word was zotso. This word is not. Jesus healed him and he made him, the word in Greek is whole. He's wholesome. He's fully fit and well assembled. He's well, physically. It has nothing to do with the true underlying thing that's going on. Jesus said to the man, stop sinning or something worse will happen. Stop sinning. Don't sin anymore. Don't sin anymore. Unlike the woman who he said when she reached out and touched him, your faith has made you well. Your faith has has won for you zotso, salvation. Internally, externally, you are saved and redeemed and cured. To this man, yeah, you're whole physically, but the real issue hasn't been handled. He warned the man of something worth, death in sin. Church, this is our why. We are a church that is passionate about making room for people who don't know Jesus, who, don't, who weren't raised in the church, who don't understand the stories and the different things, not because we think they're extra special, but to die in sin is the worst thing that can happen. 
Death without salvation is worse than any ailment, any disease, any plague, any war, any genocide. It's the worst that could happen to a soul who is born and fashioned in the image of God to die apart from Christ and go to hell for eternal separation is the worst that could happen. And that's what Jesus is saying to this man. Be careful that you think you're whole, but you keep sinning and something worse will happen. And that worse is to not be saved in me. C.S. Lewis, probably one of the most, oh man, one of the most developed literary minds, I think, of many generations. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. I've read it a number of times. He's written a number of good books. But The Problem of Pain is fascinating to me. It's fascinating. Here's a quote from it. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He uses pain to quite often get our attention, to realign our hearts. Look at it. Realign your heart. What did the woman who had been sick for 12 years do? She got completely healed. She wanted Jesus and nothing else. She touched his robe and she received by faith into her that which healed everything, Zotso. It saved, cured, healed, delivered, and took care of her both now and in eternity. And the other man who received that, that, that Zotso from Jesus, right? The, the salvation. This, this gift from Jesus of his sight, God used his troubles to declare his glory. What does that tell us? That pain quite often speaks the gospel. Because everybody knows pain. Everybody has pain. And when we look at this and know that it can be used to realign our hearts to turn to salvation, or even our pain can be used to display the glory of God. Our pain takes on purpose. Like how many of you at home are like, amen, preach all day, because it hurts, life hurts at times. There's an excerpt from a book uh, written, uh, uh, Desiring God, and Daniel Ritchie wrote this part, and I wanna read it to you. I was born without arms, Daniel Ritchie says, that is the best way to summarize my story. I stepped into suffering at birth. My physical body is a billboard for my pain. It has brought mocking, cruel jokes, stares, and the constant feeling that I am not like other people I meet. I have always been drawn to C.S. Lewis, he says, and his perspective on pain. Lewis has tasted pain in ways that few can relate to. He lost his mom at an early age, saw his dad emotionally abandon him, suffered from a respiratory illness in his teen years, and was wounded in World War I. Finally, he had to bury his beloved wife, H., he called her. Through all of this, Lewis wrote about all his heartache in his work, The Problem of Pain. In this work, Lewis penned one of his most famous and beautiful lines. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
We are most keenly aware of God's character in our suffering. It is when our self-sufficiency is peeled away that we see how weak we really are. It is in that moment of weakness that, as God tells Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.9, my power is made perfect in weakness. It is in our pain that God has us taste his power most intimately. Isn't that interesting? Pain is the place where we get to taste God's power intimately. Like that, that does something in my psyche. Because we don't need a force of nature. We need an intimate touch from God. And I think that matters. Pain is the place God has us taste and touch his power most intimately. He uses that word, taste. I don't know. There's something powerful in that. Are you waiting in pain? Are you waiting in a season where it's just painful? Whether it's from the trouble that can surround us in this world or from the consequences of sin, the reason for pain is the same. It is to birth Jesus Christ into your life. It is to die to self and be raised up in Christ Love doesn't avoid pain. Love does not avoid pain. I mean, God is love. And what did God choose? He chose the cross because the pain was worth it in order to have the connection, to restore relationship. Numbness is not healing. Ask anyone who struggles with addiction that something that numbs them It doesn't heal it. It actually complicates matters further. It's a very temporary escape from a very real pain. Numbness isn't healing. Not feeling is not being healed. Losing the ability to feel, to be numb, is actually deadly. We recognize that God chose pain. He chose to feel it all intimately. As the writer of Hebrews said, we have a high priest, Jesus, who knows everything we've gone through. He knows every aspect of our life. He was loved, he was rejected, he was adored, he was hated. He was everything. He knows. He never went numb. Here's a good way to look at it. To a child Uh, And we are the children of God. So let's just embrace that. To a child, you may be sent to your room for being terrible. And I'm guessing over the last two and a half months, you're like, go to your rooms forever. Like you kind of lose it, right? You just, ah, enough. Go to your room. As a parent, I have become an expert at saying that. You know what? Go to your room, think about those words. Like, you know, don't talk to me that way. You get sent to your room and you hate it. It was a punishment. You didn't like it. I hated getting sent to my room when I was little. It was so boring. You just sit there and you're like, I thought about my words and I hate this room. Right? It's just so lame. And then at another time, you're sent to your room and put to bed. It was for your betterment. It was for your growth. Like I know some of you, like we keep looking at our kids. I'm like, are they getting taller? Are they growing? Well, they're getting tons of sleep right now. They're getting all their rest. 
So you can get sent to your room for being naughty, but you can get sent to that same room to go to bed. And I'll tell you this, little kids like it about the same. It feels like a punishment. Okay, it's bedtime. Oh, no, not that again. I can't take it. And they fall apart, and they act like you're punishing them, but you're not. You're not. It's for their betterment. It's for their care. The kids don't like either. Both feel bad to them. They may feel like pain to a child. Sometimes we experience punishment. God's hand, he does punish us because he loves us. But sometimes we experience God's shaping hand, a hand that is not just sending us to our room, it's putting us to bed for our betterment. It's doing things in us that that make us whole on every level. Sometimes it's not punishment, it's uncomfortable, it's painful, but it's God putting us in our room so that we can get what we need for what's about to come. We can get what we need for what's about to come. So are you reaching for Jesus? Are you explaining to God why you can't be helped? Are you reaching for Jesus like that woman who was in a time of waiting for 12 years alone and finally just reached out? And remember, she reached out in a costly way, but she reached. Are you reaching for Jesus? Or are you sitting back telling everyone why you can't be helped? God could never love me if he knew what I did. I just need to tell you, he knows, he's omniscient. God knows, and he loves you just the same. God knew you would do it, and he died for you just the same. Jesus Christ will forgive you. The question is, are you reaching for him, or are you making excuses and saying why you can't be helped? Are you the woman who waited 12 years, or are you the guy at the pool of Bethsaida? Do you want to be healed? Well, I would, but I just there's no way Jesus could forgive me. It's not true. It's not true. The man at the pool responded to Jesus with why he couldn't be helped, why it was someone's fault or his fault. He couldn't get to the pool. No one helped him, and here's where I'm at. The woman came to the end of her searching and found that Jesus, only Jesus, is the place she could find hope, the place she could find healing. The name of Jesus, church, when I think about this, when my mind goes to it, it reminds me again and again why this word is central to who we are that we have to invite people to know Jesus, even if it makes us uncomfortable. There's people who don't know him, and they know something's wrong, and they're scared to death. And we sit back with the gospel in hand and ask God, well, if I just knew an opportunity... All we have to do is honestly share the name of Jesus. Receive it. Some of you have been around the name of Jesus, but you've never grabbed onto it and said, this is what I want. This is who I want to be. And so I'm going to invite you today. If you don't know Jesus, if you know about him the way I know about John Elway, and you like the idea of him but don't have a relationship with him, I want you to know him. I want you to connect with him. I want you to experience zotso, not just wholeness in your body and your being, but zotso, the fullness of the life of God in your redemption. The name of Jesus, Jesus, zotso, God is Savior. I want to invite you to reach for him. 
If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, whether you're a child sitting with your family today, or whether you're an old, old person sitting alone in a room watching this, and you've maybe known about him all your life, but you've never accepted him, I'm going to invite you to be like the woman, to reach out and receive what he has for you. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to invite you to do it today. What I'd like you to do is I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to just take a moment and um, respond to the gospel call. Because I know some of you are out there that don't know him as your Lord and Savior. Don't wait another day to receive the complete healing of what is most broken. The one thing that separates us from God is sin. And it's the one thing that Jesus obliterated on the cross. He won the war over sin and death. Pray with me. God, thank you for the name of Jesus. Thank you for pain that transforms us into your image. Thank you that the consequences of sin are real and painful so that we would run away from our own self-sufficiency and lean in to the name of Jesus. For anyone out there today who is wrestling with responding to the gospel, I pray that you would quicken their hearts and help them respond to your grace and your goodness. Amen. If you'd like to become a Christian, before we go into this next song, I'm just going to invite you to do something. Whoever you're with, you can just tell them right now. Be like, oh, it's me, and that's fine. Just tell them. And then I'm going to just ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer with me. It's a very simple prayer. And families, if one of your kids are doing this right now, mom and dad, I would invite you to pray the prayer with them, to be a part of this with them. I love the posture like this. So if you're responding to the grace of Jesus Christ by receiving him today, just do me a favor, put your hands out. I'm gonna pray a short prayer. I'll say it a couple words at a time and you can just repeat after me. Dear Jesus, today I give my life to you. Today I reach out for you. I ask you to forgive me. Forgive me for my sin and bring me close to you. I trust you as my Savior. I give my life to you. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me into a new creation in Christ. I declare that you, Jesus, are my Lord and my Savior. And from this moment, I am a Christian. Amen. It's a good time to sing about the name that has saved us. Join me. As we get ready to say goodbye, I remember the day of my salvation, August 6, 1994. 
I became a Christian. I was a brand new creation. But I didn't know what to do with myself. I was kind of lost and confused because all my life was kind of headed in the other direction, and now God redirected me. And here's the great part of it. Jesus doesn't just heal us once and like, hey, catch you in heaven and take off. That's not how it goes. One of the reasons we do devotions every day at Foundry Church and we have you reading the Word of God is because we get into a relationship with Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Word, through a life of prayer, and through a life of connected life within the church. And we are going to reconnect. We will be back soon. But we do have this connection even still as the body of Christ to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. It's one of the reasons I encouraged you to invite the Holy Spirit to fill you so that God can speak to you in your life and you can hear him. Remember what Lewis said. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he screams in our pain, right? He speaks in your conscience. You'll learn to discern the voice of God. And over time, you'll walk through joyful situations and traumatic things, but you'll walk with Jesus. And the amazing thing that I found about knowing Jesus Christ is this thing that I didn't understand when I was little, but I've come to understand better as I've got.